a psalm. A psalm for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish. All evildoers will be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard of the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God that they shall bear... I'm sorry. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. A song. A song for the Sabbath. This is the largest book of the Bible, the Psalms. 150 chapters, that's rather a few. <laughs> and it's far away the biggest book, but it's not actually a book. It was actually five books that were then over the centuries, uh, this is all long ago before Jesus even came, they were all collected into a single work that they called together the Psalms. So as you read it, you, you're actually reading five different books, each of them a collection of all of these various Psalms. The first one is the biggest, the last one's, uh, well, about the same size, might even be, I guess the last one's bigger, and then the middle three are smaller sections. But you see most Bibles now say book one, book two, book three, as you read through the Psalms. So if you ever wondered, well, that's why, because there's actually five books of Psalms that they originally had. They didn't have just one. It is poetry. Poetry is a, a genre, they call it nowadays. It's a type of writing that's designed to grab the heart. It's about uh, bringing out emotion. It's about feeling God about joy. Why? How do you feel joy? Because psalms are designed to give you, all poetry really, is designed to touch the heart. I mean, how come love sonnets are always poetry? You know, there's a reason for that. Psalms tend to be about that. This one's both. It's a psalm and a song. So it is both kind of things there. The Bible also contains uh, just narration, just stories. Just telling the story of what happened. That's all over in the Bible. It has what's called didactic. That's teaching material designed to make you change. It's not just so you can learn, but actually designed to help you learn so that you can change. That's didactic literature, they call that. There's lots of that in the Bible, and there's just plain legal stuff in the Bible. There's laws that are there too, and other things. Uh, but mainly, the point of all of this, and especially in the Psalms, the Psalms is all about learning God, about teaching us about God. It's all about experiencing God. It's not really about science. It's not really about history. It's not really about natural events. Those are in there, but they're only there to teach us about God. They're only illustrations about the spiritual reality of who God is. So as you read it, you don't read poetry 
to get science. <laughs> That's not its point. Its point is to help you to experience God. There are 150 psalms, as I said. 116 of them have an introduction, like this one. A psalm, a song to the Sabbath. That's the introduction. It's not actually a part of the psalm itself. 57 of those introductions use the Hebrew word. It's actually mizmor, but it's, it's the Greek word. Greeks translated it psalm, and in, out of English, we get that's where we get it. It's just called a psalm. There are psalms. All of them together are psalms. And there are, some of them are songs. This one is a psalm that is a song. So you use them the same way. So if you put an S in the end, that means more than one. So that's all it means. So we aren't reading Psalms 92. We're reading Psalm 92. So just to help you so that, that you know how that works. In those introductions, by the way, 73 of them are attributed to David. 73 of the Psalms, those introductions say, are David. In the New Testament, there are some Psalms that are quoted, two of them, that are attributed to David. So the New Testament writers tell us, well, they're David's, even though we didn't know that from what was written. So that means 75, half of the Psalms were actually written by David. So it's quite a few. Uh, we also find some guy named Asaph. Now the word Asaph in Hebrew means collector. So we don't know if somebody just wrote some, but he was also the collector of Psalms, so he just used the word Asaph to say that he did it. Or if, if his name was Asaph, and because he collected things, that became the word for collector. I don't know. But some guy named Asaph, or that used the title Asaph, or anyway, he wrote 12 of them. Sons of Korah, this may be your, my favorite one. Korah means bald. <laughs> and sons of can mean a person who's an offspring of, but it can also mean people like that. So either the bald guys wrote uh, 10 of them, or uh, that's just his real name or something. I don't know what, but <laughs> that's what the word means. So you can do what you want with it, but there's 10 of them written by that guy. Two of them are attributed to Solomon. And there's one each by Moses. We know who Moses was. I, did, I bet you didn't know that some of the Psalms were that old. Somebody named Heman, which means faithful. And then another guy named Ethan, which means enduring. Those guys each wrote a Psalm. And the other half, no idea who wrote them. Somebody wrote them. It's okay. God knows. It doesn't matter. We'll find out in heaven. But they're all great for that kind of touching of the heart. There are three basic types of Psalms. There are some others. The lament, uh, like in a funeral. Psalm 90, we use in funerals a lot. It's beautiful. If you've not read it, it's, it's just really a, a, about life and about what we should feel, what we should fear, where we, what our hope is. It's just, it's really good. So those kind of things, it's, it's the old Neil Diamond thing, you know, you've got to sing the blues. But when you sing the blues, you start to feel better, right? That, that's a lament. That's the same truth. It actually works. And that's why they're there in the, in the Bible is to, when you're struggling, you, you read or Better yet is to have somebody else read it for you and just listen to it and let it, it just, it just somehow it helps you. You want to do that. There are Thanksgiving Psalms that are they're just about thanking God. That's the only reason they're there, just to thank God. Because, and remember, some of these were used, or all of these really were used. Psalm is a text that's got an accompaniment of stringed instruments. That's the actual technical point of a psalm. They could be saying it with music in the background. They could be chanting it. They could be singing it. Any of those things could be true. This one is a song also as well as a psalm, so we know this one was designed to be sung. So thanksgiving and praise, this one also happens to be both. <laughs> so there, that's the point, the praise and the thanksgiving, that's the most common of these psalms. So you'll find those all over the place. Psalms are designed for two things. This one's designed for the corporate group, the everybody. 
uh, Cliff and Linda actually have a song that he wrote from Psalm 92. So they sang that for us last night. It was real fun to hear. It was designed to sing. And, and so some of them are that way and they're designed for everybody to sing together. Some psalms are very individual. You can just feel that it's one person sitting there working this out and it's designed for us to, to contemplate as one person. It's not really designed for everybody to do together. They're both in there. Uh, there's a ton of messianic psalms, that, uh, songs about the Messiah, about the Christ. They're all over. Some of them just talking about how wonderful the whole idea is. Some of them giving actual prophecies. What's going to happen? They actually say the things and they're quoted in the New Testament, some of them. And, and then some are actually uh, you know, not quoted in the Old Testament, but they're still prophecies about the Messiah. So we found some of those. They're very exciting to read. I will tell you there's a problem with one kind of psalms. They're, they're called, they have a really dark name, the imprecatory psalms. And it sounds as dark as it is. What they do is they're calling down curses from God on their enemies. Uh, one of them actually says, don't tell anybody this, but it actually says, Lord, dash their children against the rocks. I mean, this guy is just not happy. Uh, and when you read it, you're going, um, God, why is that in the Bible? Well, I don't know. Dr. Jacobson said his take on it is that these are private prayers. They're all private, the imprecatory. And he thinks that basically it's a guy being honest with God. This is how I feel, God. Do this to him. That's how I feel. And you know when you're all by yourself in your own prayer closet, you can do that. <laughs> you can say, God, this, this is what I want you to do, God. That's really what I want you to do. And then maybe God will come back to you and say, you know... There is a better way. <laughs> so I don't know, but th those are definitely going that uh, lament style. They aren't really the other. They aren't really Thanksgiving or praise. They're they're really about suffering and about pain and hurt. And so you do have you do run into those. There's a handful of them. There's I think seven or eight. I forget how many there are of those. But when you when you come across them, you kind of go woo. Uh, they're really hard. But just realize how pain, how the pain that the person was in when they wrote it, and you kind of kind of get a feeling for where they're going with them. So you want to do that. But there are well, actually, you know this this one said a song for the Sabbath. You want to guess how many psalms were written specifically for the Sabbath? Just one, this one, this is it. This is the only psalm. Psalm 92 is the only one specifically says in it, this is for the Sabbath. This is for, when you guys all gather again, now they gathered on Saturdays, Sabbath, Seventh Day, they gathered on Saturdays for their worship. You know, we gather on the Lord's Day here today, uh, so it doesn't really matter which day you do. They're saying that when you get together to celebrate and worship God, that's what this psalm is for. This Psalm 92 is for this purpose, for us to all share Alright, let's read Psalm 92.1. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. Now at the end of the psalm, he returns to this same idea and he explains why, the writer explains why God helps the righteous to allow each of them to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. So between these, the beginning and the end of the psalm, we get, in one hand, we get the whole purpose. What's our deal? We want to give thanks to the Lord. We want to sing praises to His name. Why? Because He's good. Because He's our rock. Because there's no unrighteousness in Him. And He, he made us able to function so that we can give Him praise. So we're all, this is why we're doing this. This is why we're happy. This is where our joy comes from. This is it. God is for us, if you will. 
But I also want you to notice while we're on this one, you'll see how I did the words up here. Now this, that ending has that little extra thing, he is my rock. But throughout poetry, Hebrew poetry, you know how we rhyme? Our poetry is, anybody want a peanut? Uh, you know that? You haven't seen the, you guys haven't seen the uh, Princess Bride enough. I can tell that right now. The, the guy that's the mean guy says, now you stop it, I mean it. And the other, because he's been rhyming all along, says, you stop it, I mean it. And, he, and the other guy screams out, anybody want to peanut? it? You know, so that's our rhyme, that's our poetry. We rhyme. They didn't rhyme. Uh, what they did was do everything in pairs. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name almost high. That's a pair. If you're ever reading Hebrew poetry, if anybody ever quotes you out of the psalm and they only do half of one, you should ask, what's the other half? Because they're, they're supposed to be together. And together they give you the meaning the man's trying to get to. To declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. And there is no unrighteousness in him. The Lord is upright. There's no unrighteousness in him. Those things go together. You need to always find the pairs. And as we go through this, you'll see how they all fit together. So that's Hebrew poetry. It's always in pairs. The Proverbs are all in pairs. If you hear only half of a proverb, you haven't heard the whole thing. You need to hear the rest and get the idea. So that's what you watch for whenever you're looking at Hebrew poetry. So let's look at some. Uh, the, we're going to talk about expressing joy and why we should. He says in the second verse, uh, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night to the music of the lute and the harp and the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. So you can see those all going together. And then in the other section that's like this, the why we should express joy, the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. So you see how the pairs kind of go together there. Let's talk about some of the things that's in these two sections. And in all the Psalms, we'll find constantly name, the name of God, the Lord. That's all over in the, the Psalms. Um, well, they're all about God. <laughs> Big surprise there. But you'll also find other names that the Hebrews gave to, to the Lord throughout uh, the Psalms. You'll find descriptions of God. you find titles of God. They're everywhere. So watch for those all the time as you're reading the Psalms. It's all about God. And you constantly run into these beautiful descriptions of who God is or that kind of thing. And one of the words, one of the things, we read it as steadfast love. Declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. That word that's translated here, steadfast love, is sometimes uh, everlasting love, your care, your those kind of words. The Hebrew word is hased. Uh, Dr. Ostell, when he was in his uh, probably mid-80s then, he had been teaching and translating the Bible for more than 50 years at that point. I mean, he started studying Hebrew in his teens and by his 20s he was already regarded as an expert and by the time he reached his 80s he was world-renowned. People from around the world wanted to know what Herman Ostel thought about some part of the Hebrew. Uh, and he did a talk in the chapel at our seminary once and he got up and he said he was going to talk about one word that said and in his opinion, hased is the most critical word in the Hebrew language. And it's all about the care of God. And as you go through the Psalms, you'll see steadfast love, uh, or however your Bible translates that phrase, you'll see it constantly, that absolute care of God for the people that it is. It is so completely overwhelming in all that God does. 
And so as you watch through the Psalms, you'll see that, that constant attention to steadfast love. Just the care that God has for us is so enormous. So you want to watch that one. It is the whole point of the Lord's help. The help that He gives to us is throughout the Psalms. It's almost, sometimes you feel like that's all the guy's going to talk about. <laughs> sometimes it is all he talks about. Wow, God helps me. He helps me. God is my help. You see that all the time. It's just a tremendous truth that is part of what the psalmists are trying to draw our hearts to. God's going to help us. So watch for that. Uh, the music of the lute and the harp, the melody of the lyre. The lyre is actually a translation of ten-stringed instrument, which we know now is the lyre. When I was growing up, there was a preacher, he was really excited. He was an evangelist, I think, actually. And he says, all right, everybody, pull out your ten-stringed instruments and let's, let's go. And they meant clap with the music, right? That's not what it means. I'm sorry. I mean, it's a wonderful thought, but, but actually we have uh, a, a piece of text preserved from in a place called Ugarit. It's actually a description of their music with the chords. They actually played chords back then. I was taught when I was in music education school back in college, they taught us that, that they didn't know anything about chords. No, they're wrong. <laughs> they, they described chords. They had chords back then, just like we do now, and they played a ten-stringed instrument that was very popular throughout the whole Middle Eastern region, and uh, we now know it as the lyre. Uh, and they, uh, that was how they accompanied music back then, and they played chords just like we do and all that kind of thing. So the ten-stringed instrument is actually the lute. That's, so if your Bible says ten-stringed instrument, that's actually what it's talking about. And you'll find throughout the Psalms instruments described and using this instrument, using that instrument. So music was a really big deal in their worship, just like it is for us. So that hasn't changed. However, the descriptions of things, you know, a palm tree. You know, I haven't seen a palm tree in Westport yet, uh, except in a pot or something. They just don't do very well here, right? But there they have palm trees, and palm trees are the things, when they grow, there's water there, and they really grow well, and they just they go like mad. Uh, the cedars of Lebanon, almost all the cedars are gone in that part of the world now. They're, because of where they are at the edge of the Mediterranean, all the armies through the centuries would go right through there. And every time an army comes through, they have to have fires and they make the things. And so they would cut down trees every time they came through. And eventually, they just, there's almost no trees left in that part of the world. But at the time this was written, there were cedar forests that spanned huge areas and they were gargantuan, strong trees. And so his point is by pairing the palm trees and the and the cedars, he's trying to get to an image. Well, over there, that was an image that was easy for them to understand. We have to think through that. We have to figure out what he's trying to say. Shadows. You know, around here, you don't really want to be in the shadows. But in the scriptures, in the Psalms, you'll find them saying that God gives us a shadow, that we get to be in the shadow. Well, you know, I grew up in southern Idaho, and in the summer when it's 105 degrees, and that sun's beating down on you, and there is no relief. You don't see a cloud. From about beginning of July until the end of the summer, you don't see a cloud. And by the middle of the day, when you've been working for six, eight hours out in that hot sun, a shadow's a bit... We used to, when we would go walking down the street, we'd get to a stop sign and have to wait for the crosswalk. We'd move over and stand in the shadow of the pole. That's how hot it is over there. And these guys had it that bad. So a shadow to them, we have to think, wait a minute, why is a shadow good? Oh, that's right, because that sun burning down on them was, was literally killing them. They would be dehydrated. They, they, they had to be careful. So shadows are a big thing. So when we think, we have to remember that we're thinking about the Middle East. In the, in, you know, well, this, these are written, some of them, a thousand years before and more, 1,400 years before. 
Christ ever came. So we have to think that they're, they're looking at this very different uh, than we are sometimes. But the most important thing to remember in all of these words as we look through them in the Psalms and this poetry, that they're, they're, they're the physical. They're describing the physical. But that's not the point. The point is the spiritual. They're, they're looking at the physical to try and get us to see the spiritual. Some modern scholars, I mean, I love them and all, but I think they're really dull-witted. They think these people are too stupid to understand spiritual, so they just read... They, I've actually, they say all the time, well, back in that day, the Israels, Israelites, they, they just thought that, that uh, you know, it was all physical. It was all, no, they didn't. They weren't that dumb. They knew there was something beyond this. And they were using what happens in this life to point to the spiritual. And maybe they were even smarter than we are because we sometimes want to act like what we do in this life doesn't have anything to do with the spiritual. And that's never true. So maybe maybe they really get it. But as you read these words and words about the enemy and words that, those are really about a spiritual picture. They're really supposed to bring that to our mind. Also, you'll notice the place that, that God brings him into the court of the Lord, you know, that kind of thing. Well, why would he say that? Because in their system, as we talked, was that just last week, we talked about that God set up places for them to see him, places for them to worship him, especially the temple in Jerusalem. So that idea... It is about a place to worship, but if you, as you notice throughout this psalm, it's really about the heart. And the whole point of the psalms are to touch the heart. They're all about emotion. So as we go through it, we understand that they understood that even though there was a place, it was still about the heart. Now we got to read a part that, well, it's not my favorite. <laughs> Can we say it that way? We have to get a description of the uh, joyless people. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass, that all evildoers flourish. And he goes on. In the other section, verse 9, For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish, all evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. Well, we should probably start with that stupid and fool statement. <laughs> okay, well, it sounds a little harsh. First, understand that fool in all of the wisdom literature and really throughout the Old Testament is about people who will not believe in God. He's not talking about people who are just not, that are foolish. We'd say nowadays, that's not what he means. In, in their terms, fool was a person who would not attach themselves to the real God, to Yahweh. And so he was not thinking well. He was stupid. Not that he was mentally deficient, but that he chose not to think well. So these, this pair, the stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand it, he's talking about somebody that's choosing. He's not just talking about, well, they can't because they're too dumb. That's, he's not saying dumb at all. He's saying this person can't get it because they won't get it. And that's the point of this. This, When you see that, it's kind of pairs of words. You have to take them together and understand. But fool in, the, in that thing always means a person who doesn't believe in the God. It, it never, I don't think ever in the Psalms, I, I don't, I'm pretty sure that's a safe thing to say. I don't think they've ever used for anything but that. So as you're reading it, be aware that sometimes that we attach to words ideas that, well, they didn't mean. 
So you have to kind of think those things out and read everything around it. Word repetition. Horn is used a lot and sometimes we'll see it repeated there. Enemies. I like that, that he says, your enemies, O Lord, and then he says, my enemies. Well, is he saying that your enemies are my enemies? Or is he saying my enemies are your enemies? I'm not sure what he said. But he's saying that this enemy thing, God is with us on this enemy thing. So you watch for repetitions of words. He didn't do it on, by mistake. He means to rep- repeat those words and make you tie things together. So sometimes in the psalm, you'll have words at the top and the bottom. You realize, oh, wait a minute. Ah, I see. He's trying to make me connect these two thoughts. So you kind of have to read the whole psalm and then, then look back at it again. It works really well. By the way, their end. Um, their end. What happens at the end? I have seen the downfall of my enemy. There, the ears have heard of the doom of my evil assailant. That's a an important point to to gather. We're we're going to come back to that though. So for the moment, I'm going to leave that. <laughs> I do want you to note another thing throughout the Psalms. Remember that that worship back then was designed by God to be held in a different way. So they had a sacred place. Of course, the place is, really. They had the temple, and then all of Jerusalem, and then all of Israel. So they had sacred places, but then they also had sacred times. Obviously, the Sabbath. This one was written specifically for the Sabbath. But they had the festivals. They had all these different things. So as you're reading, you'll find references to something. And if you... Look at the little notes at the bottom of the Bibles. They all have those now. They're really helpful. They'll say something about, oh, this is for that time when they do the Passover or the Feast of Booths or whatever it is. They'll go ahead and describe to you and that'll help you to understand where they're going because sometimes they tie two things there uh, that, that have to do with the service, just like Jesus did when he went to the temple a number of times. When he did that, we talked about last night, the water where he says, I'm the... But he also had a time when he says, I am the light. That's tied to that festival. So he was using words that they were thinking about at the time. And they do the same thing in the Psalms. So you kind of want to think about that kind of thing too. Obviously there were rituals, sacrifices mostly, uh, but also they poured oil out in ceremony. Now this oil he's talking about is a cleaning oil, but the, back then, the oil, there's sometimes you see him talking about the oil that they poured out or they used in the lamps in the temple or something like that for the ritual services. They sprinkled. I used to, as a kid, I can remember thinking sprinkled because, again, we lived in Southern Idaho. It was drier in the bone in the summer. So you had to water, sprinkle your lawn. You had to sprinkle the fields. In fact, you could get a job as a teenager going around laying pipe just to sprinkle the crops. So sprinkle, I'm thinking, okay, well, all right. That's how I pictured it. But actually, there are ceremonies that, that God gave them where they would sprinkle, um, actually, usually blood, <laughs> uh, across as a forgiveness of sin picture. So sometimes when you read in the Psalms that God sprinkled us, He's actually meaning God's forgiving us for what we've done. And so we kind of, you have to mentally re- put together where He's going. That has to do with the rituals that they did. So knowing those things will help you. Again, the footnotes that they had in Bibles are worth it. And again, watch the words. They have sacred words that they use. The Lord, Yahweh, is a very sacred word for them. Uh, You watch for things like that and you can see where it goes. On that temple thing, we talked again a little bit. The temple was the place that God said to come and worship Him. But why? In their mind, it wasn't that the temple is a place you come to worship. The temple was a place built for God to be so that you could come there and worship Him. So it's really more about where God is 
So references to the temple in the Psalms are much more about where God is than about worship of God. But obviously the two are very closely connected. And while we're talking about worship, in the Psalms, the word that's translated, used to, that we translate to worship, they had lots of words for worship, but the one they use the most is one that can also mean service, to serve. And so our serving of God, when we come here, our serving of each other, uh, I think it's good we still call these services. I don't know. I think it's a good thing. But While we're talking about this, I want to touch on one other thing. You notice he's talking about the enemies being scattered, the, the doom of my evil assailants, the downfall of my enemies, those kind of phrases. There's really not much hint of heaven, what we call normally heaven, the paradise, the next life. There's very little in the whole Old Testament, including the Psalm. There's almost nothing. They get almost no description of what it's going to be like at all. C.S. Lewis wrote a book and he said, you know, it's really remarkable that the Hebrews ever followed God because he doesn't give them any promises really to amount to diddly. Yeah, I'll take care of you in the land. I'll make sure your kids do okay. But there's no eternal life type of promises hardly at all. There's very little in the Bible. I mean, there's hints all over, but nothing specific like we have in the New Testament. It's kind of amazing that they were willing to say, well, we're going to follow the one God because he really didn't give them much of a long-term promise in that sense. We do see, though, that they clearly expected it. Even though it's not written too much, there was an absolutely clear expectation of getting to heaven, of some kind of paradise. At the time of Jesus, when he came, remember Jesus is still the Old Testament until he dies and raises again. You know, That's still the beginning of the church. They're still in the Old Testament. And they all had an expectation of paradise. When he told that parable about Lazarus and going to paradise, nobody said, wait, 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 what's paradise? Nobody said that. They knew what he meant. Everybody expected that there would be some sort of eternal good place for us to be. They just didn't know much about what it was. In fact, the best description that you get in the Psalms is what it's not. <laughs> it says, because they will be you know, doomed forever. You find that a lot in the in the Psalms, that they, the evil people are destroyed forever. They, the evil people have bad things happen to them in the eternal place. So we know that if they do, we don't. So most of our description of what's good, or their description that they had of what's going to be good eternally is what it's not going to be, what the bad it's not going to be. So they don't really get a lot of description, but you will see that backwards. And remember, like I was saying, this, just like the spiritual is really a part of what happens here. They're really looking at the spiritual even though it's all about this life. The same thing about the future. They're projecting the future from what they're seeing in this life. So when you see that you press, uh, poured fresh oil over me, over, over there, well, first we've got to recognize they didn't have showers and uh, they're hot and sweaty. and uh, Well... They were odiferous. Shall we just say they smelled really bad? <laughs> and oil was used to, to as a fragrance to help cover that smell up. But also oil was used, and of course we're not talking uh, motor oil, we're not talking petroleum oil, but actually vegetable oils. And there were quite a number of vegetable oils. And some of them were actually used you could work to clean. They didn't stick to you. They helped clean the dirt off you because everything's dusty, dirty. And so they actually used oils for cleanliness. They use oils to refresh you. You actually felt better when you were done with an oil bath, if you will. Uh, they cleaned their hair with the oil. 
all these kind of things. Oil was a, just a picture of the tremendous care uh, and, and pleasure that you get from God. And so when you project that into the future, you begin to see what they're saying. Well, we need to make all this make sense. And fortunately, the psalm does that for us. In Psalm 92, 7 and 8, it says, The evil people, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. Well, before we get to the words, let's talk about the technical part so as we read other psalms, we can benefit from it. You know, the first question is, why are we ending in the middle of the psalm? <laughs> 7 and 8, wait, didn't it go clear? To, what, how come we're in the middle? Well, because this particular psalm is a ring structure. The middle is the main point. The outside two pieces, you notice we started with the first and the last verse, and then the next pieces came together, and then the next pieces came together, and now we're at the middle. Well, this psalm is designed that way. It's, it's a structure that's to help them focus on the most important point. They are doomed to destruction forever, but you, O Lord, are on high forever. That's the main function of this psalm, the main focus of this psalm, to recognize that eternal truth. And so this writer arranged it such that it's a ring structure, sometimes called a chiasm, that the middle chiasm's Greek for the X, Greek X, that's the, the letter X for them. So you go, you know, you just go from one to here to here. So you go in and out. That's the point of this song. It starts here and here, goes in into the middle, uh, or you can say it goes into the middle and back out. So these, that's why the pairs match. That helps to understand the song. So you want to watch for these structures. There are acrostic structures that are, in, their, in Hebrew case, it's only alphabetical. You can do an acrostic of anything you want. That accidental acrostic, as guy's doing a class and he's going down, he's writing the first one up. And he does the first in the capital and then all the smaller case. He writes that one down. And then he writes this one. And the first one starts with an S, the next one starts with a W. He just goes, but he's not paying attention to those letters. But when he's all done, down the sign, it spells sweat socks. Uh, that's not what he meant. But, <laughs> it didn't have anything to do with the lesson, but what it is, is an acrostic, and we have to kind of think. Some of the psalms are actually made, Psalm 119 is an incredible acrostic. The whole thing is huge, but there are seven verses. Each of them start with the first letter, then the second letter of Hebrew, and the third letter of Hebrew. So seven verses for each one, uh, and each of them starting with the letter of the alphabet that they're working with at that time. It's quite an amazing feat when you look, even in Hebrew, which is, it's a little easier for technical reasons to do it in Hebrew, but it's still a lot of work. And somebody went to a lot of work to make Psalm 119, and it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful psalm. So the structure of psalms, so you want to watch for that. And one of the problems is like we just read, they are doomed to destruction forever, but you, O Lord, are on high forever. Clearly that's the pair, right? I mean, you couldn't miss that. They're designed. And the guy puts the, the verse break right in the middle. He puts chapter, verse 8 right before the but you, O Lord. Why would he do that? I don't know why he did it. <laughs> but the problem with verses is that they weren't part of the original psalm or any of the Bible. Verses were added in the I think 1600s, if I remember right. 1400s. Anyway, just before the King James Version was put out and printed not long before that. They're helpful. I mean, it's nice to be able to say, go to John 3.16. Well, we I'll just turn to John's third chapter, verse 16. And it's real easy to get there. Or turn to Psalm 92, verse 7. Okay, there we are. Uh, that's easy to do, but they can be they can confuse us because they can disrupt the structure of the psalm or whatever. In Psalms, the chapters are actually correct. They're each psalm. So they're really nicely divided for us. Each chapter is a psalm. So you take that chapter and you've got the whole thing. And then you go to the next chapter and you've got one thing. In the New Testament and most of the other, all the rest of the scriptures, 
they are, uh, the chapters are arbitrary. They're uh, not quite arbitrary. The guys that did them, uh, clear back in the 1100, wait, a thousand years after Christ, but a thousand years before us, they divided them by chapters for the same reason another guy eventually did verses, so that we could more easily find places. Uh, now, the Psalms were originally put together, and so as they collected them, they just numbered them. It was easy, but the rest of them, the chapters, and there's one place in the New Testament that's really weird because the chapter is exactly in the middle of the sentence. Uh, nobody knows why in the world the guy decided to make that a chapter, but as you're reading, be aware that chapters and verses were added after the Bible was written. So just because they're broken up by chapter and verse doesn't mean that's what God intended it to be read like or heard like. So make sure as you're going through it that you're you're not thinking the chapter is the end for sure. You need to kind of look, okay, that's right, I get it now. Most of the chapter breaks make sense. They're at a good spot. Uh, but every once in a while you run across one and kind of shake your head and think, why would a guy do that? It's real strange. So you just want to, there's a problem with verses and chapters. Now to get to these words, the actual words, they are doomed to destruction forever, but you, O Lord, are on high forever. One of the most common elements of the Psalms are the comparison of good and evil. How good and evil oppose one another. This is a great theme. In fact, if you haven't noticed, the light and the dark side of the force, for those of you who like Star Wars. The good and the bad guy. The old cowboys, the good guy always had a white hat. The bad guy always had a black hat. If a guy had a gray hat, if he was good at the beginning of the movie, he was bad at the end. And if he was bad at the beginning, he was good at the end. Things are predictable. Good and bad are make sense, right? Nowadays, they want to confuse it all. But the truth is, good and evil oppose one another. The most ardent anti-God person is angry about evil. And they have no reason to be because there's no you can't really say there's evil when you don't have a God. You simply have a, I don't like it. Okay, fine. What if I do like it? We're talking about Islamics beheading people. Well, how do you say that's a bad thing? Well, because God says, okay, that's fair. But I don't like it. So what? Maybe they like beheading people. It's inconvenient for the person beheading. But what about the guy doing the beheading? Maybe he likes it. If all it is is what I like, you really haven't got evil. And you really haven't got good. You just got what's convenient or nice for me. So, in the Psalms, and throughout the Scripture, we see this opposition of good and evil, this comparison of good and evil. It's real. It's actually real. Now, I will grant you like Psalm 2.1, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? You know, talking about why do people get angry at God? Why do people do this? Okay, they didn't separate in their words, they didn't separate the person from the sin at all, really. <laughs> That's okay. They just felt it was a thing of the heart and you deal with it. We really try a lot harder and in the age of grace, the age of the church, we're better able to separate the sinner from the sin. Um, the big deal now, well, a big deal now is homosexuality. Every, all people say, well, Christians all hate homosexuals. Well, where did you ever hear that? I mean, I'm sure there are guys who call themselves Christians who hate. Maybe people really are. I hope that's not true. But, you know, we're none of us perfect. So we hate homosexuality because it's bad for people, because it's not good. The Bible says it destroys people. So we don't like the homosexuality, but you don't not love the homosexual. Well, they weren't that clear at all. Actually, they didn't even worry about it. They never worry in the, in the Old Testament at all, really, but particularly in the Psalms, you don't see that separation of the person and the sin. They just tie them together. You're supposed to deal with it yourself. Okay, so 
as you go through it, understand that they expect you to have a mind and a heart. <laughs> they don't expect you just to, to be this person who just reads, oh, there we go. You know, no, you're supposed to be thinking here. So you'll see that kind of thing. But what I want to talk about, though, is what the evil are like and why this is still about joy, because this is a psalm about joy. Wait a minute. They are doomed to destruction forever, but you, O Lord, are on high forever. Is about joy? Well, let me explain. When we get to the end, after the rapture and after we have the marriage supper of the Lamb and there's the whole millennium thing, we get to clear to the end. God's going to finally do a final judgment. And that's going to be it. And in that, He's going to start with one person, Satan. And He's going to take Satan and He's going to judge him and He's going to be cast into the lake of fire. Is anybody here not going to cheer I've seen the pain Satan causes. I've seen the, the things he does to people. It makes me so angry that what happens to people, uh, the, the people that die needlessly, these horrible things. I'm telling you, beheading people, believe me, that's satanic. That's Satan. That's his work. He loves that kind of thing he, because he hates. He doesn't have a love. He just hates. And he's so much hate. And we're going to cheer because he is going to get thrown into hell which is actually lake of fire. We use the word hell, but that's okay. He's going to be thrown to there forever. And we're going to cheer because he should. And only by confining him in that place can we get rid of evil. That's how God gets rid of evil. But there's this other part. Remember when Jesus was talking to this group of guys and he says to them, you're like your father. And that's why you don't like me, but I'm like my father. Thinking, what are you talking about? So he works it and works it and eventually he gets to this and he gets really blatant with them. He says, you are like your father, the devil. He was a liar from the beginning. He's the father of all lies and he goes on about that. Needless to say, they were a little upset because they were Jews and they thought just being a Jew made them perfect, but they were wrong. <laughs> so he's dealing with them on this. But the point, what he's saying is, you become like the one you follow. I'll borrow from C.S. Lewis again. He tells this story. He says there's this 80-year-old guy. He's a rotten old guy. He's just been mean his whole life and he just gets worse as time goes on. Every year he's worse than he was before. But he is your uncle. And you got to go to his birthday party. It is his 80th birthday. So you go to the birthday party and he's as rotten as you thought. Well, he doesn't die. He lives in a whole other year. So you all right, better go again. So you go to this party. He's worse than he was last year. He just, how can a guy get worse? But he does. You know how some people, they get worse. And then he goes, hey, what if he lives to 85? Ooh, think how bad he's going to be. What if he lives to 90 or 100? Think how bad this guy's going to be. And then Lewis goes on, he says, what if he lives to 1,000? What if it's 10,000 years? What will it be like? And he said, it will be hell. And he said, I'm speaking technically. It will be hell. The point is, evil people become like the person they choose to follow. They reject Christ. They will not follow Him. And they become like Satan. It's horrible to understand. Now, if they're breathing, they still got a chance. <laughs> but at death, that ends. And they become like the one they serve. And it's really weird to understand but we will understand then. We do not now. But the Psalms are pretty clear. 
we're going to cheer for the same reason we cheered when Satan went there, because they became like their father. It's hard, but it's an actual truth. We get, somehow we've got to deal with that. But it is about joy. It is about being glad that God saved us. And he separates them out. They wanted to be, okay, fine. He puts them, Lewis said it this way, it's the last gift that God can give an unrepentant sinner to confine them. They, don't, they aren't by other beings. They can't hurt anybody. And they can't be hurt by anybody else. They just end up like they are. And they choose. They never will change their mind. They never will. It's incredible to understand, but the Bible's clear. They never change their mind. They will forever reject God. Woo! That's horrible for me to think, but that's the extra case. So he, he isolates them <laughs> so they can't harm each other and they can't harm anybody else anymore. They're just they're stuck where they are forever. It's like this, you know, in counseling. We talk about it all the time and, we, and Donna refers to it. You kind of, why do you go to AA meetings? Well, because you don't like what your life is. We ask that question. Do you really want to be like you are? Is this it? This is what you're going to be for the rest of your life. Is that what you want? And they go, no, I don't want that. Well, then we need to do something. We need to change. And so that's what you do. We're saying this, is what you are now, what your life is now, is this what you want to be forever? Forever. Just forever. This is it forever? No, we want you to have something better. That's what we're talking about here. This is the whole point of our discussion. We want you to be better forever. And also with God on our side, we actually get better yet. <laughs> I don't know how that will work, but it's going to be a lot of fun. And it is true. Everyone who trusts in the Lord will have reason to praise and thank Him and have the joy and everything that the psalmist was so excited about. That will be true of all of us who believe. So that's our message. What do we want you to have? I want you to have joy. I want you to have this eternal chesed, this loving kindness, this steadfast love, this whatever way you want to say it, this care of God that's so tremendous. I want that for you. That's why I'm telling you, Give that up. You don't want to be what you are. You don't want to be that. Turn. Turn towards Christ. And that's our, that's our message. And that's really the message of many of the Psalms, including this one. I'm going to read it for you here. I don't know about you, but sometimes I like to just close my eyes and hear the words. So uh, we're not going to put it on the screen or anything. I'm just going to read it. And you just listen to the thing as it goes along. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand it. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. 
They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. And there is no unrighteousness in him.